Hey crew, I'm not Jordan Schneider. I'm his editor, Nicholas Welch, coming at you again after a thus far moderately successful podcasting coup. Last month, I spoke with Paul Huang in Taipei, discussing the PLA and Taiwan's defense strategy. In today's show, I'm interviewing a very special guest, Karis Templeman of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is one of the most hipster academics out there, who 20 years ago started working not on China issues, but Taiwan issues. He's a genuine expert on all things Taiwan, especially its domestic politics. And for full disclosure, he was my professor at Stanford. I took two of his classes, one on Taiwanese security issues and one on Taiwan's democratic evolution. I think today, the main thing we want to address is what's going on in Taiwan with the upcoming elections. On January 13th, 2024, uh, the Taiwanese populace is going to head to the polls and choose their next president. President Tsai Ing-wen has already served two, two terms, so there's going to be a new president. I'll go over some of the boring facts about the candidates, and then you can fill in what the interesting things are we need to know. So for the, the ruling party currently, the Democratic Progressive Party, the candidate is Lai Qingde. He is currently the vice president of Taiwan. Before that, he was the premier, also under Tsai Ing-wen. Before that, he was the mayor of Tainan, a large city in southern Taiwan. And before that, he was in the medical field. He was a spinal cord expert and worked in rehabilitation. For the KMT, the Nationalist Party, we have Ho Yo Yi. His career started in police. He's actually a very high-ranking cop. Um, he's had some interesting caseloads, including dealing with a high-profile hostage negotiation rescue in Taipei, as well as investigating the assassination attempt of former President Chen Shui-bian. After his time as a cop, he was made deputy mayor of New Taipei City when Eric Chu, currently the KMT chairman, was mayor. And since 2018, Ho Yo Yi has been serving as the mayor of New Taipei City. Lastly, we have a third-party candidate. His name is Ko Wenzhou. He's a member of the newly established Taiwan People's Party, or TPP. He's originally from Penghu, and his career also started, like Lai Qing does, in the medical field. He was an ER trauma surgeon. But then in 2014, he entered politics. He was elected mayor of Taipei as an independent and served for eight years until 2022. So that's the background. Why don't you help us know, what else do we need to know about these candidates? All right, so... I mean, the, the first thing you've noted is that this is an open seat race, uh, that uh, we've got three declared candidates for the presidency, none as the incumbent. Uh, so it's, uh, in that sense, it's wide open. Um, Lai Qingde is candidate of the ruling party, the DPP, um, and he's you know, following the footsteps of Tsai Ing-wen, who won two very large victories in 2016 and 2020. But he's going to, I think, struggle a little bit to hold on to the coalition that Tsai Ing-wen built. Uh, he's a, a bit of a different candidate, a different style of candidate than Tsai. Um, and polling numbers are showing him uh, quite a bit weaker than Tsai Ing-wen was uh, in the under 40 demographic. And so so for that reason, I think uh, this is actually, a, um, it's hard to predict who's going to win this next election. In addition... Well, there's a three-way race. So uh, Ko Wenja is uh, this third-party candidate. Traditionally, over the past several elections, we've had two major party candidates, the KMT and the DPP. This time around, Ko Wenja is polling very well right now. And so that suggests that uh, he may actually draw a significant share of the vote away from the two major parties. Uh, and he has, I think, 
non-zero probability of actually winning the election. Uh, and so because of that, strong incentives for voters who really dislike one of the candidates to vote strategically for one of the other two. Uh, so I expect there to be a lot of volatility in the run-up to the, the uh, election in January in the polls uh, and a fair amount of um, uh, kind of appeals by the candidates to, to convince voters that they themselves are the, you know, the second best alternative to a candidate who's hopeless. And so there's going to be, a, um, I think, some, some major shifts in the polls over the next few months based on who voters themselves see as the most viable. You know, something interesting that listeners should know about Taiwan's electoral system, a presidential candidate need not win a strong majority, over 50%, to actually win the presidency. Uh, they just need a plurality. So three-way races can actually be very important in determining um, who will succeed. Uh, this happened in 2000 when the KMT's candidate, Lian Zhang, and James Song had a falling out. James Song ran as an independent and he split the vote of people who would normally want to vote for KMT. And Chen Shui-bian, although he received just under 40% of the vote, still won more votes than the other candidates. So he won the presidency. Do you see something like that possibly occurring in 2024? I think it's more likely than not that we have a minority winner so in other words, no candidate crests 50% of the vote. And you know, if it were just a two-party race uh, or if Coenja were just a fringe candidate who wasn't uh, polling more than, say, 5% of the vote, then we might still have a majority winner. But I think Ko is strong enough to hold on to you know, a crucial sliver of the electorate that would pull down uh, one or both of the other candidates uh, well below 50%. Could you help listeners make sense of what the TPP's platform really is? Kawanja, he's branded himself as the third way. Um, so if you don't like the pan blue KMP camp, if you don't like the pan green DPP camp, then you can vote for me. But the TPP, like I said before, was founded in 2019. It's very new. Um, what exactly is the TPP's platform and what could we expect if Kawanja really won the presidency? Yeah, well, it uh, it started out really as a personal vehicle for Ke to exert influence in national politics. So uh, the creation of the party in 2019 was a decision of Ke. He, you know, pulled some people uh, into the party with him, um, but it was very much, you know, the Ke P, the the Ke Wenja party, and um, they deliberately avoided taking. Kind of a clear stance on cross-strait relations or on many of the other policy issues that divide the parties in Taiwan today. Uh, and Ke's kind of rationale for that was that he, you know, he just, he's a doctor, he's very pragmatic, he just, you know, sees problems and he solves them. And you just need to do, use common sense to address whatever problems are facing the country. And he's the candidate of common sense and the other two parties uh, spend all this time engaging in partisan fistfights. And so he won't be that. And in fact, the the choice of the party's uh, color, even in Taiwan, colors, every color signifies a kind of, uh, has a political significance, right? So the TPP is not green or blue, they're aquamarine. And so they've literally kind of chosen the color right in between green and blue to symbolize that they're um, the centrist uh, alternative to both camps. Um, and frankly, even now, I don't know that I could tell you exactly what the TPP stands for, or what 
Coenja would do if he became president. You know, um, uh, when he came into um, office in 2014, he was actually backed by the DPP. The DPP supported his campaign, and so he was originally kind of characterized as being part of the green camp in Taiwan. More recently, he's drifted towards the blue end of the spectrum, uh, and the conventional wisdom is that uh, his candidacy is likely to hurt the KMT more than the DPP now. And uh, his talking points on cross-strait relations have been all over the map. You know, he, he will criticize China in very harsh terms on one day and then talk about how the two sides of the strait are part of the same family in the next day. So I think very hard to pin down on a lot of these issues. I'm also curious what to make of the KMT's candidate at the moment. The KMT nomination process was a little bit interesting this time around because they forewent opening the primaries to elections. And instead, the KMT chairman just chose Hoyo Yi instead. Before, Hou Yi and Guo Taiming were the front runners for winning the KMT nomination for the presidency. And mm-hmm. Chairman Eric Chu just nixed the whole process and personally selected Hou Yi. And we've seen reports that, for example, Chairman Eric Chu has vehemently t- denied suggestions that maybe Kao Wenzhe should join Hou Yi's ticket and they should run together to make sure they don't split the vote. That he feels confident. But also, Kao Wenzhe is currently pulling higher than Hou Yi, uh, which is a little bit strange for a country that's been so institutionalized with two parties. And the other factor I think about here is in 2022, the midterm elections, the KMT actually performed quite well. In fact, they performed so well that uh, Tsai Ing-wen, who was the chairwoman of the DPP, stepped down. So I'm not sure how to make sense of the KMT's odds uh, going forward, and I'm not sure what's driving these polling and electoral shifts recently. Could you help shed light on that? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the nomination process first in the KMT, because that is, I think, not well understood, even within Taiwan. Um, So the challenge that the major parties in Taiwan have had for years is how to identify the strongest general election candidate uh, when they choose a nominee. Um, And uh, if you just hold a vote of party members, uh, you may get a candidate who's much more extreme than the median voter in the electorate. Uh, and then those candidates can appeal to the base, but they can't appeal to swing voters. And so they they do very poorly in the general election. We're familiar with this problem in the U.S. as well, right, uh, in our own primary system. And both the major political parties in Taiwan have experimented with ways to kind of mitigate that problem. So rather than having a party uh, primary that is restricted only to party members, uh, they open it up to a larger swath of the electorate. Or increasingly over the past, say, 15 years, the parties have moved towards polls as a significant part of the nominating uh, process. And so they'll do a poll of the electorate and see which candidate polls the best against a common opponent. The problem with that, on the, on the one hand, you do generally get the candidate who appears to be the strongest in the general election. But on the other hand, polls can be manipulated, right? There's all kinds of w- what we would normally think of as fairly technical questions about how to design a sample, how to weight that sample so that it represents the electorate. Do you use uh, cell phones as well as landlines? 
do you uh, use different polling companies or all the same? Do you poll over just one day or over an, uh, you know, like a two-week period? And most importantly, uh, yeah, which candidate do you put that your own party's potential nominees up against in the poll? So do you ask, you know, uh, do we put Hoyoyi up against Lai Qingda and Koenja or just Lai, for instance? Uh, and then if there are alternatives, do we put those other candidates up against up against Lai and and Ke or alternatives, and so all of those can actually fundamentally kind of shift the result of the polls in a certain direction. And so both parties have have become less uh, less enthusiastic about using that sort of polling mechanism to choose their candidates. Another problem they've run into is especially uh, for local level races, um, there's actually a way to kind of rig the system. So th there are credible rumors of candidates actually renting out an entire building, you know, plugging in a thousand phone lines <laughs> into a building and then having their people in the building answering the polling calls that they know are going to come and basically biasing the polling results toward their favorite candidate. I don't know how you uh, screen for that. You know, um, if a candidate really does have the kind of resources to do that, that's a way to kind of rig the the poll results. Um, another problem, and and the one that became really apparent in 2020, is that uh, if you're polling the entire general electorate and they know there's a poll that might decide the other party's nominee, uh, a green polling company is going to get some blue voters, and a blue company is going to get some green voters in their sample if it's a representative sample. And so the respondents have, if you are, say, a member of the KMT, you want to nominate the most extreme DPP candidate so, because he's easiest to run against, right? And so you say, oh, I really love this one guy. Or in 2020, a lot of green voters apparently said, no, you really need to nominate Han Guoyu. We think he would be the best candidate in this case. And so the KMT ended up with, I think, a less appealing candidate than they otherwise could have uh, in that race. So that's the kind of background story here for why the KMT in this election decided not to use the polling mechanism. They actually tried out in 2022 in the local elections an alternative where uh, they negotiated at the local level and the party executive committee brought all the prospective candidates together, uh, looked at polls privately, but did not announce that they were going to do that. And also just kind of informally canvassed local party members to figure out which, which of the candidates appeared to be the strongest one. And then the party chairman had the authority just to handpick the nominees after that process. The outcome of the 2022 election was so favorable for the KMT that they thought, that actually looks like a good method for 2024 as well. So let's let's basically repeat that process for the presidential nomination. The problem they've run into, of course, is uh, the rules were very opaque. The final decision, uh, the losing candidates, the candidates who didn't get picked, especially Guo Timing, Terry Guo, were really unhappy with that. And the KMT leadership couldn't really demonstrate to everybody that this was a fair process. Uh, and so Guo Taiming is now, sounds like he is still trying to overthrow the process and, and get himself nominated as the KMT candidate. Um, I think that it's unlikely that will happen, but um, there is not unity in the party now behind their nominee uh, because of uh, disputes over that process and uh, kind of discontent with the way that Ho Yi was chosen. So that's 
that's the problem. And I, uh, you know, I should note the DPP is DPP avoided this problem only by uh, excluding every other candidate except Lai Qingda himself. He was able to kind of clear the field even beforehand. So they didn't have a, an actual contested process to choose their nominee. Um, in 2020, they did. Lai actually challenged Tsai Ing-wen uh, and she used her control of the party to to delay the primary and then to kind of structure the rules in such a way that she had the best chance of coming out on top. Uh, and so there was a, there were some better feelings at the end of that process as well. It's just that the DPP is generally much better at kind of closing ranks uh, when you get close to the election than the KMT is. So neither party has, I think, come up with the an ideal way to deal with this problem. Uh, and there's still every election cycle kind of experimenting with new uh, solutions to the challenge. You mentioned before Lai Qingda directly challenged Tsai Ing-wen in the 2020 election, but the DPP was able to maintain a semblance of unity ultimately because Tsai Ing-wen then chose Lai Qingda as her vice president running mate. And to his credit, uh, Guo Taiming, at least on Facebook, has endorsed Hou Yi as the KMT candidate. But that only goes so far. Yeah, and he's not... Uh, he's also he's not acting like he wants Ho to be the nominee or that he wants Ho to win. He's still, you know, he's he's showing up publicly with Kowinja at events, and um, you know, he did the bare minimum to endorse Ho at the end of that formal nomination process. But there's lots of rumors within the KMT right now that he's still trying to overturn the nomination. The party actually hasn't formally selected Ho as their candidate, that's going to take place on July 23rd. And so there's still an outside shot, at least Guo Taiming seems to think so, that he might be able to lead some kind of rebellion within the KMT to overrule uh, the party chairman and get himself selected as the nominee. The difference with 2020 was that Lai Qingda actually on day one after the nominee was announced, uh, endorsed Tsai Ing-wen didn't criticize the process, accepted his defeat and said, we have to unify to defeat uh, the KMT uh, and China. <laughs> and so the DPP was, well, Lai's rhetoric really kind of helped unify the party in a way that, I mean, he could have really messed things up for the DPP if he'd refused to support Tsai. So, um, you know, in this this cycle, Tsai Ing-wen is uh, has supported Lai as her successor. And, um, you know, there's credible rumors that she would have preferred to see somebody else, but Lai was able to, you know, build a critical, a kind of decisive coalition behind him within the DPP. And as a result, uh, Tsai is, um, is fully supporting his campaign now as, as the DPP's nominee. She's not trying to maneuver behind the scenes to force him out and pick someone else. And beyond party unity, what are the issues on which the Taiwanese electorate is considering in choosing a candidate? And the, if we're in the Washington, D.C. bubble, we're just thinking, which candidate isn't going to push Xi Jinping's buttons? Or which one is going to yeah. most likely maintain the status quo? Or, or which one's going to bolster the military the most? But Taiwanese voters have a lot more issues on their mind. They might be considering yeah. a slow quarter one economic growth this year. Or there's been some pretty serious droughts in the southern part of the island. Um, can you speak to... What are the factors that are going to drive the average Taiwanese voter? Well, cross-strait relations is always the headline issue, and it's the issue that uh, most clearly divides the parties and the candidates. Um, but underneath that headline, there are 
some serious, I would call them quality of life or cost of living issues that have left a sizable chunk of the electorate uh, dissatisfied with eight years of DPP governance. So uh, the cost of housing right now is astoundingly high in Taipei and the surrounding areas. Uh, and so it's just impossible for anybody just entering the job market to even contemplate buying a house at any point in their future life uh, if they're living uh, in Taipei or nearby, unless they've got help from their parents, right? And so the, the prospects of actually you know, getting a job, buying a house, getting married, starting a family, all of that is, um, is pretty daunting if you're a young person in Taipei right now. And uh, wages in Taiwan are also quite low. Uh, relative to the, the even the regional standard, they're quite a bit lower than in Korea and in Japan, and they haven't really uh, gone up at the same rate as economic growth over the last eight years. Uh, and so, there's I think a lot of a lot of frustrated young people in Taiwan right now, where they feel like the deck is just completely stacked against them. They can find a job, but it's not going to pay them much. The cost of living uh, keeps going up. Inflation in Taiwan, like in most of the world, has been quite high over the last couple of years. Uh, it's eating away whatever uh, kind of gains they can make in their their salary. Um, and uh, the DPP government, eight years ago, when the DPP was running uh, to take over from the KMT, criticized the KMT on all of these issues. But things have just, uh, for a lot of young people, just gotten worse over the last eight years. So. I think there's a, a kind of latent unhappiness with the incumbent party that is uh, creating some real headwinds for Lai Qingde in the coming election. And I I think he's going to struggle to do anywhere near as well as Tsai Ing-wen. And part of the challenge is that he's or he's the candidate of the ruling party. Uh, he's Tsai Ing-wen's vice president. He was formerly premier. He's very closely associated with the Tsai government in voters' minds. And so... Uh, if everything in Taiwan were going well, uh, he could make a credible case that, you know, vote for me, I will keep things on the right track. And he, he could, you know, I think, make a pretty strong appeal to voters. But he needs instead to kind of promise to fix a lot of problems that people are are worried about. And he's going to have a hard time making that case because he was premier. He was in a position to fix it. Of thinking of a lot of voters and and the problems didn't get fixed. And so if you vote for lie for a lot of voters, it's an endorsement of the status quo, the way things are now in the domestic economy. So um, I think those issues are really going to, especially among younger voters, really uh, may create a kind of anti-incumbent um, trend in, in the electorate. And speaking of uh, younger voters, one policy change the DPP made with respect to young people, is extending the mandatory military conscription period from yeah. four months to 12 months. Um, and interestingly, Hoyo Yi has said that he does not support this. And if he were elected president, he would keep the mandatory conscription period to four months. And you can, yeah, you can make lots of arguments on both sides. I know people in the, in the DC world don't like the signals that keeping military conscription short would send to their willingness to fight or to America's role. And, but people in Taiwan will say, I don't like standing in line and cleaning barracks toilets for four months. So why would I want to do that right. for, for 12 months? I, could you speak to that concern at all? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I should clarify, Ho uh, floated a trial balloon where he said, you know, I, I want to reverse this policy. Uh, and then a day later, 
walked it back. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's it appears to be the case now that Ho supports the extension of conscription to one year um, and that there's uh, some division maybe within the KMT on this issue as well. Uh, regardless, it's not a good look for him, I think, in the eyes of Washington, D.C., where uh, there's strong support. There's um, a lot of pressure, actually, on the Taiwanese government to uh, reform the military and to extend conscription as one part of a much larger set of changes. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, young people in Taiwan are not particularly enthusiastic about the idea of having to serve, spend a year of their lives in the military. Um the support for the change tends to be higher among older people who don't have to bear the burden of it now. But it's another issue that could potentially undercut the DPP's support among young people. The Tsai Ing-wen, to her credit, I think decided that it was you know urgent. It was uh, should be a, an important priority for her government to extend conscription just for national security reasons, even if it came at some kind of a political cost. But the DPP may end up bearing part of the cost of that decision in January. So, yeah. And in fact, one year is probably not long enough. Taiwan used to have two years conscription. And the people who've looked at this issue in the United States have almost universally said Taiwan needs to be at a minimum of two years again uh, to send a signal to Beijing that they're well prepared to fight off an attack. Uh, and as a signal to the U.S. that the Taiwanese are committed to their own defense uh, at the level that the U.S. is. Uh, the, the hope among uh, a lot of the people I talk to in the U.S. is that this is a first step. It's a down payment on a, an extension of conscription, maybe to two years and maybe more. Um, and whoever the next president is in Taiwan is going to have to deal with that contradiction where uh, voters by and large don't want that extension. And Taiwan's largest patron and most important security partner does. Okay, let's talk about China. What does the CCP make of all of this? I think historically, it was probably pretty safe to say that this, the uh, CCP much preferred the KMT candidate. They were uh, much more on board with the idea of unification under some terms. But this time around is a little bit different in the sense that all three candidates, including Hao Youyi, has rejected the one country, two systems proposal. Will that influence how China sees cooperation with the future Taiwanese government? Uh, do you still think they would prefer Hao Yi over another candidate? Yeah, I think it, uh, generally they would prefer the KMT to win. They certainly don't want the DPP to win. Um, I think that's, that's clear. And uh, they just don't trust the DPP at all. Uh, they're just, um, you know, they have a, a paranoia about the DPP that um, Tsai Ing-wen herself tried to uh, overcome. Uh, she made a lot of rhetorical concessions in her inauguration speech when she came into office that were intended to try to reassure Beijing that she would not support Taiwanese independence, that she would not try to separate Taiwan from China. And Beijing's response was, that's not good enough. You need to go further. Uh, and she, politically, it was impossible for her to go further without losing most of her party. And so there's just a fundamental irresolvable, I think, con conflict or difference between uh, the DPP's view of the cross-strait relationship and Beijing's view. And the KMT uh, has had some 
you know, difficult relations with Beijing, but there's fundamentally a level of trust and understanding between the two sides that uh, between the KMT and the CCP that doesn't exist between the CCP and the DPP. So I think all else equal, they would definitely prefer a KMT candidate in office. Um, they feel like they can at least work with someone from the KMT and the DPP is just hopeless and, and they need to squeeze the DPP and, and try to undermine them at every turn. Um, the real wild card here is actually Ke, Ke Wenjie. Um, and he, as mayor, was able to travel to the mainland and speak in Shanghai at the Cross-Strait Forum. And he's used some phrases in the past that Beijing has reciprocated and adopted. So there's uh, a phrase about both sides belonging to the same family. And Beijing actually started to use that phrase in some of their official uh, statements about uh, the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. Um, and so that was, a, I think, a positive signal that they... They saw a Ke in a different light than they would see a DPP candidate. Um, more recently, though, Ke has been uh, quite critical of the CCP, uh, and you know, it's it's he's also got this kind of background as a physician who came into electoral politics with the backing of the DPP, and so um, I think he's still perhaps a bit tainted by that um, in Beijing's eyes, and so. It's not clear to me what Beijing would do if he were actually the president next year. Um, and I think a lot would depend on what he says over the next six months and then what he says in the run up to his inauguration if he is the president. Uh, but I think all else equal, uh, the KMT is a known quantity. It's uh, from the CCP's perspective, far preferable to dealing with the DPP. Uh, and so all else equal, they would prefer that Hoyoyi win this election. Do you think that China will attempt to influence the elections in any way to achieve that outcome? I mention that just because they've been known to shoot themselves in the foot before. In 2016, a member of the K-pop band Twice, she was forced by her pathetic employer to make this groveling apology for holding a, a Taiwanese flag in a music video for about two seconds. And when they polled people in the 2016 election, something like 55% of voter, voters were aware of the issue at the time. And of course, Tsai Ing-wen won quite easily in 2016. And then we have in 2020, the protests in Hong Kong the previous year put the final nail in the coffin of one country, two systems ever working. And I think people became very skeptical of cooperation, cross-strait cooperation. And once again, we saw Tsai Ing-wen win quite easily. So China may view that uh, election history differently or the reasons for the outcomes differently. But do you think that the CCP will try to interfere in this election? Yeah, I think the smart move for the CCP, if they really do want the KMT to win, is to be quiet and to do as little publicly as possible to try to influence the outcome. They have, as you noted, a, a repeated history of shooting themselves in the foot, of doing something that uh, causes a backlash against their preferred candidate or positions. And so uh, I would expect them over the next few months actually to dial back some of the uh, military pressure on Taiwan. Some of your listeners may know this. Uh, they are already lifting some of the uh, arbitrary bans on Taiwanese agricultural exports to the mainland. Um, and they're doing this in a very kind of piecemeal way, uh, but they are. Uh, trying to signal that 
you know, if the Taiwanese voters choose the China-friendly candidate, uh, you can expect more of these concessions in the economic realm. So I think they're, the most likely strategy for them is to, to try to dial back some of the explicit threats against Taiwan and focus more on the benefits that Taiwan might gain by electing a more China-friendly candidate president. That said, the CCP is a big, unwieldy bureaucracy, and it's conditioned to, to kind of say and do things that can often be very tone deaf in the Taiwanese political environment. And so I, the Zhou uh, example that you mentioned, I don't think there was any chance that was planned by the CCP. Uh, it just so happened that their longstanding insistence on artistic groups endorsing the one China principle and you know, it, it was something that kind of bubbled up from from a low level, probably bureaucrat or somebody trying to influence this group. And it just so happened that she had to apologize. And it was on TVs in Taiwan all day during Election Day. I don't think that was at all intended by the CCP. So something there could be a big surprise, you know, something that is totally unintended that pops up in the last days before the election that really triggers a lot of anger at the PRC and motivates Taiwanese voters uh, who are on the fence about the candidates to swing towards the DPP and away from the KMT. So I don't know, <laughs> you know, my, my best guess, so I think that the, the strategically most sound uh, approach is for them to focus on the benefits that Taiwan would get and to dial back a lot of the uh, overt military and diplomatic pressure. Uh, but they could do this very carefully over many months and then suddenly have it blow up in the week before the election as well. So it's going to be exciting. Uh, you know, stay tuned, folks. It's, uh, it's going to be a fun a few months to follow. <laughs> kind of on a similar line, uh, something that I found really interesting taking your classes with regard to potential election interference is that Taiwan's election system, in your words, in an academic paper, is unhackable. It uh, has some really interesting and notable features which make it quite resistant to interference. And I don't think I don't think very many people know how Taiwan's elections actually operate on the day of. Um, could you talk about what makes Taiwan's elections different? Sure, let's talk about that. Um, the critical thing here is that Taiwan's uh, voting and counting is uh, very low tech and very transparent. So the voting is done via paper ballots at you know, there's a large number of polling places relative to the size of the electorate. That the rules are very standardized throughout the island, uh, and they're open eight to four on a Saturday. There's no absentee balloting, and there's no early voting. So, uh, for a vote to count, it has to be cast between eight and four at the polling place that a voter is assigned on election day. That's it. Uh, so, right away, you. Uh, you screen out a lot of the kind of things that complicate American elections, like mail-in votes that arrive a week later and questions about whether the signature on the ballot uh, or the, the, the mail-in vote was actually accurate or not. So the Taiwan system has none of that. Uh, it's very simple that way. It also has uh, a lot fewer races than the U.S. on the ballot. So um, in fact, each election, each race that is being chosen uh, the voter gets a separate ballot for that race. So in the general election next January, there will be a presidential ballot 
There will be a district legislative ballot, and then there will be a ballot for the party list. So they will get three pieces of paper. Uh, the ballot is very simply designed with the picture of the candidate, the candidate's name, and their party. And then there's a place to just to stamp uh, your uh, vote for that candidate. And the stamp is a, a special symbol. And you have to use that stamp in the vo voting booth to, to cast a valid ballot. And then uh, once that ballot is stamped, it's just dropped in a box in the middle of the polling station. Uh, and it sits there until the end of the day. After four, they close up. Uh, and then they immediately rearrange the room. And uh, the same people who, the, the poll workers who've been monitoring the count the whole time, or the, the vote the whole time, then do the count in public view of everyone. So it's actually done at the polling station immediately after the polls close. You typically have about a dozen poll workers there uh, calling out each vote, uh, you know, picking it up, looking at it by hand, calling it out and recording it. And anybody who wants to watch that count can actually come into the polling station and be in a position where they can observe each vote being counted. So uh, if you have any concern that there may be uh, miscounts or, um, you know, ballot stuffing or, you know, votes kind of being tossed away, any individual, even a foreign observer, you can go in and just watch the count and reassure yourself that, you know, they're actually counting accurately. Last thing that's great about this system is uh, because it's done at the polling place using these paper ballots and there's no absentee or early voting, uh, the vote is done very quickly. It's usually completed within two to three hours after the polls close. And so they are in a position actually to announce the winner, say, five hours uh, at the latest. Uh, and they typically certify the count, like every single vote that's cast all throughout the Republic of China on Taiwan, that whole process is certified by the next day. Like to an American, that's amazing, right? We're, I think we're still counting votes in California six months after the election, or it feels like it. It takes a long time to get all the votes counted here. Uh, in Taiwan, it's very fast. And so as a result, you know the winner, uh, and the vote count also is very accurate. Uh, in some cases, there have been very close races, and they've had to go back and do a recount. And the number of votes that change is in typically in the single digits, maybe double digits, but it's it's very, very accurate. And then the spoiled ballot rate, too, so votes that are, are thrown out as invalid because somebody stamped two boxes, you know, uh, or... Uh, they signed their name to the ballot. That makes the ballot invalid. Um, the spoil rate is about 1%. So it's significantly lower than in the US too. So in that sense, if you wanted to try to you know, manipulate the results, you would have to do it on a wide scale under the full view of all of these uh, ordinary people coming in to watch the count. Uh, so in that sense, uh, in my view, the, the, the count is almost impossible to hack. Right. So it sounds like, yeah, the votes themselves, the election system itself is really hard to manipulate. But that, of course, doesn't address the media scene in Taiwan, which is quite hyper-partisan and actually surprisingly prone to spreading misinformation. For example, even this year, one story that caught fire was that the U.S. had a so-called plan to destroy Taiwan, that in the event of some contingency, the U.S. would just eliminate our interest in Taiwan by destroying the island wholesale. And this, of course, is fake news, but a lot of people bought onto this, and this was broadcast in prominent networks. Um, another one that was spread was 
about the U.S. evacuation plan. In the event of an invasion, how would the United States evacuate American citizens who are on the island? And people considered this story to be an indication that the U.S. had no resolve to defend Taiwan whatsoever, and they were already planning for defeat. So these kind of stories tend to stick in Taiwanese media for some reason. And what can we make of all this? Yeah, so the Taiwanese media is hyper-competitive, first off. So the, the marketplace is just saturated. There are seven or eight uh, 24-hour news channels in Taiwan, and they cover mostly political news. Uh, so uh, any nugget, any statement by any political figure will get broadcast on the evening news because they need something to cover, right? And they're just constantly competing for eyeballs. So the more provocative you can make that report, the better, the more people will tune in and the more potential advertising revenue they can raise then. So there's this kind of race to the bottom among especially television stations uh, in the desire to build and, and retain an audience uh, that leads them to to kind of sensationalize a lot of political reporting. It also means that they don't have a whole lot of resources to do in-depth reporting. You know, broadcasters or, or uh, television reporters are typically not going out into the field, calling lots of people, getting lots of uh, different viewpoints on an issue. They typically will interview one or two people and then just use that as a soundbite in the evening news. And so it's a very kind of shallow presentation typically, of what the the day's political news is. And on top of that, most of the major media companies in Taiwan are, they're, they're privately owned and they typically have a partisan slant to them. So you can pretty easily identify blue television stations and green television stations. And their news coverage, what they decide to feature, how they frame issues um, gets it really does affect um, the kinds of things that they highlight to voters. And so, you know, an issue may end up uh, not being that important at all, but you'll have a, a particular TV station that thinks, you know, we can get a lot of viewers if we just talk about this. And even if it's not true, uh, we're not sure that it's not true. And so we're just going to run with it and we'll, we'll clean up the mess afterwards if we have to. But Newspapers are generally a little bit better, but even in the news newspapers, the print media, there's a, a fair number of kind of rumors that get turned into political stories with a very catchy headline. And then you actually read through the story and you realize they don't have, uh, it's all anonymous sourcing. It's, you know, maybe one anonymous person within the, the Tsai administration or a political party. They didn't reach out to the other side for an attempt to you know, get uh, their version of events. Um, it's it's pretty shoddy journalism, uh, and that you know, I'm I'm fairly sympathetic to reporters in Taiwan because they're just under an incredible time crunch. They're supposed to produce, in some cases, dozens of stories every couple of days, so they just don't have time to do uh, in depth, high quality journalism. So that's that's kind of the baseline, uh, and then there's a a big problem when you get into election time where there are malicious actors out there who want to manipulate the news to try to favor one camp or another. Um, and the obvious threat is from the CCP and their efforts to try to you know, shape the campaign in a way that, that disadvantages the DPP and probably favors the KMT. 
So I'll give you one example that just popped up a couple of days ago. The United Daily News, which is a pan blue newspaper, published a story citing um, some minutes from a meeting, uh, a secret meeting that the Tsai Ing-wen government had where they agreed to a U.S. demand to create a bioweapons program in Taiwan. Like as Americans, this just seems laughable. Of course, the U.S. is not going to farm out any bioweapons program. That's just absurd. You know, our whole approach to weapons of mass destruction is to try to keep as tight control over them as possible to, to prevent their spread around the world. But this is a common trope in anti-U.S. rhetoric coming out of China. Uh, there's you know, a longstanding argument that Fort Derrick in the United States is a site of a U.S. bioweapons program, and it may have been the site of, or the start of COVID from there. It's deliberate disinformation that's been spread to try to absolve China of any responsibility for the start of COVID. And this news story actually looks suspiciously like that PRC rhetoric about the U.S. being the source of bioweapons uh, and, and just infectious disease spread. And it, it was quite disturbing to me to see United Daily News actually you know, print that as a real story and claiming that they had uh, real sources to, doc to, to verify it. Uh, and very quickly, other people then pointed out that the meeting minutes uh, that they alleged were uh, legitimate actually had a bunch of language that was not consistent with uh, a typical uh, Thai government uh, meetings minute. And uh, was pretty clearly made up. <laughs> so, you know, the United Daily News is a—it's a very old newspaper. It's pretty venerable. It, it does have some semblance of a, a reputation as a legitimate journalistic organization. And so, for them to publish that um, makes me worry about what else we'll see over the next six months. Uh, that, you know, even even the print media, which tends to have a bit higher bar for taking stuff to print might just be willing to go with, even though it's uh, it's not substantiated in the end. Yeah, my impression reading the news about all this from lots of sources, Taiwanese, in the mainland, in the U.S., is that the stakes this time around seem really high, higher than they have been in the past. And perhaps that comes from the fact that we have U.S. intelligence saying that Xi Jinping has told the PLA that um, the PLA should, quote, be ready for a Taiwan contingency by the year 2027. Uh, what be ready actually entails and means is a different question. But 2027 is going to be within the next Taiwanese presidential administration. So could you speak to why the stakes seem so high this time around? Yeah, well, I think you've you've just nailed it. It's, um, I mean, if you really do believe that Xi Jinping is gearing up for a potential invasion uh, and that he's told the PLA to be prepared to take Taiwan by 2027, uh, as a Taiwan voter, that is within the next presidential term. And so you are choosing the leader who potentially has to confront that threat um, in 2027. And if that is you know, the most important issue for you, then it's a really hard choice. You know, If you choose the DPP, you're basically saying uh, we shouldn't make any concessions to the PRC. Uh, we should lean as close to the US as possible, um, but we may need to dramatically accelerate our own defense preparations uh, to counter that threat. If you choose the KMT, uh, you may well be thinking, you know, the KMT can buy us time. The KMT is Beijing's preferred partner. Uh, if they're in office, they can at least 
uh, delay the possibility of an invasion. Xi Jinping will not feel so uh, compelled to move sooner rather than later. And I do think as we get closer to election day, those two very starkly different narratives about the choice about, and about what the Taiwan leaders should do over the next four years um, are going to become increasingly central to the debate uh, in the campaign. I actually worry a little bit about the narrative in the US that's kind of, in my view, hyping the near-term threat to Taiwan. Because uh, every time a US general stands up and says, my gut tells me we're going to fight in 2025 over Taiwan, or you know, there's this window of opportunity where Xi Jinping can come take Taiwan. Um, number one, that is reinforcing the P CCP's actually preferred narrative about the stakes. Uh, that uh, they really do have the capabilities and they really are committed to taking Taiwan. Uh, and if you believe that, then the rational thing to do from a U.S. perspective is to cut a deal and walk away, right? Uh, if the CCP is willing to pay any price and bear any burden to take Taiwan, the U.S. is not. Uh, we're not going to fight a nuclear war with the PRC over Taiwan. Uh, and they want us to believe that they would. And so when we kind of reinforce that view of Xi Jinping as just someone who cannot be bargained with, cannot be satisfied over Taiwan, then the, we're, I think, unwittingly making the case uh, that we shouldn't actually throw everything the U.S. has into defending Taiwan or confronting the PRC over this issue. And that's how the CCP wins without a fight, in my view. They win the narrative. They convince the U.S. or whoever the U.S. leadership is. Uh, that they just want Taiwan more, they're willing to pay a lot more to get it. Uh, the second problem is that, and a lot of the people making these arguments in the U.S. are are doing it with the the audience in mind in D.C. and maybe the American public, but they're not really thinking much about the Taiwanese voters themselves. Uh, they have this very kind of two dimensional view of uh, how rhetoric about the threat will affect the Taiwanese electorate. Uh, and in my view, they're actually, I think, helping the KMT make their case. You know, If you were uh, hyping up the threat and saying, wow, Xi Jinping is really common, you guys need to get ready, you're basically saying you have a choice, either spend dramatically more on your military tomorrow, institute really long conscription, make all of these sacrifices, or elect the KMT. <laughs> And the KMT can buy us time so that we don't have to do all of these things in the near term. And you know, if the KMT actually gets their act together in this campaign, they may be able to just take that message and run with it. And it may be fairly compelling to a lot of Taiwan voters. Uh, and it's, again, kind of being unintentionally reinforced by people in D.C. arguing that the, you know, the threat is, is, is close and getting closer and you know, Xi Jinping just cannot be reasoned with over the Taiwan issue. I should say that I don't buy that argument at all. I think Xi Jinping has other concerns. He doesn't need Taiwan to stay in power. Uh, in fact, moving on Taiwan could potentially threaten his grip on power if it doesn't go well. And so the status quo for, the Xi, Jin, for Xi Jinping and the CCP is not an existential threat. They can live with the way things are now across the strait. And it's only if and when the U.S. looks like we're coming out in open support of Taiwan independence or some version of it where we say Taiwan should be permanently separated from China, 
um, that we elevate that issue much closer to an existential threat to the CCP. There's a lot of nuance in U.S. positions towards Taiwan and China, um, and it's important, I think, to stick to the the longstanding U.S. One China policy, uh, where uh, we do not support Taiwan independence, uh, and we insist that the two sides of the strait um, should any uh, change to the status quo requires the consent of uh, people on both sides of the strait, uh, and that. Uh, we are not going to get involved in mediating between the two sides of the strait. Uh, and if the two sides can work out their differences, we actually don't take a position on what Taiwan's future should be. If the Taiwanese people willingly accept some uh, form of unification with the PRC, uh, we will not object to that. If the Taiwanese people can gain the PRC's assent to establish a de jure independent Taiwan, we will willingly go along with that too. And so. I think, you know, the U.S.'s one China policy has actually done a good job of keeping the peace for the last 43 years. Uh, and we would uh, be foolish, I think, to to shift it in either direction, either in a more pro-PRC direction or a more uh, pro-Taiwan independence direction uh, over the next few years. There's actually a lot of you know, a lot of proposals in Congress right now, a lot, surprising amount of legislation related to Taiwan. Uh, I worry a little bit about some of it because uh, it does involve amending the Taiwan Relations Act in some cases. Uh, for instance, to make the director of AIT a Senate confirmable appointment. I actually think that's a really dumb idea, even if you what you really care about is just Taiwan and its relationship with the U.S., because then you're giving... Tommy Tuberville or Ted Cruz, an effective veto over the director of AIT. And right now they don't have that veto. That's a good thing in my view. So I think there's a lot of uh, kind of poorly thought through efforts to signal greater U.S. support for Taiwan that are, are kind of moving their way through Congress. And uh, some of them could be actually pretty destabilizing uh, for the trilateral relationship. I'd love your thoughts on this. I'll share a quick anecdote. I'm wearing one of my favorite sweatshirts of all time. It says uh, Taiwanese Beijing, <laughs> which, which I think is hilarious. And I've worn this sweatshirt all over the place for many months, including I just visited Taiwan for most of June and I wore this jacket pretty much everywhere. I have yet to meet one person in America, in Taiwan, highly educated, no education, politically minded, apolitical completely. I've yet to find one person who gets the joke upon seeing it. They just, they don't make the connection that, oh, well, when Taiwan competes in the Olympics, for example, they compete under the name Chinese Taipei. This is sort of a sticking point toward China. And that's been really informative to me because it tells me I live in this insulated ivory tower bubble where these kind of political jokes make a lot of sense to me instantly. And it's reflected to me again that I need to do more to enmesh myself in what the average Taiwanese voter may be thinking about or to really understand what's going on on the island. And I think that's probably something every policymaker in D.C. should think about as well. Just if they're going to make policy with regard to Taiwan, they, they really need to understand what's happening on the ground, what people, what people in Taiwan think about. And I definitely consider you to be someone who has mastered that approach and you read your blog, for example, um, you have really detailed analyses of uh, local politicians and um, how these elections will play out and what people care about. 
Do you have any advice for how someone living on the other side of the world can better understand what's going on in Taiwan, what an average Taiwanese person thinks, so we can make better policy toward the island? Yeah. I, well, so first, I have lots of thoughts about that, but uh, let me first direct a comment towards political elites who go to Taiwan, uh, have that opportunity to visit Taiwan and talk to the Taiwanese. I, a longstanding pet peeve of mine is that a typical American visiting Taiwan thinks of themselves as kind of, you know, bringing American wisdom and advice and expertise to educate the poor, uninformed, um, badly equipped Taiwanese. And I hate to break it to these people, but there's delegations of Americans coming to Taiwan all the time now. There are multiple delegations a week, and the Taiwanese are up to their eyeballs in Americans who have advice for them. I actually think it's much more valuable if the learning goes the other way, where the American delegation lands in Taipei, meets their interlocutors, and then shuts up and takes questions from the Taiwanese side rather than uh, giving them advice. Uh, and so my first urging, my first... Um, request of people going to Taiwan is, is shut up and listen a little bit more. Um, I think we have this tendency to think we're the, we have all the answers and the rest of the world, uh, it, it's just a one-way street of us going in. It's not. Um, the Taiwanese have lived with this threat from across the strait for 73 years, and they probably know more than you do about the nature of that threat and just how multifaceted it is. And, uh, how we best could help them to meet that threat. So that's that's about elites. That's people who can you know walk in and, and demand a, a meeting with Tsai Ing-wen herself or somebody in her cabinet. Um, I think for uh, ordinary Americans, it's helpful to well. Uh, you know, let me say something about uh, just learning learning the language as well. You know, the the working language in Taiwan is Mandarin Chinese, right? Uh, and there's actually a, a large number of students in the U.S. who've now taken Mandarin, who, you know, maybe traveled to China as well. Uh, and I, I think that group has a lot to learn from Taiwan because it's it's a Chinese-speaking society, but it's one that is politically just night and day compared to uh, mainland China, right? Uh, and so, in a sense, it offers a kind of alternative vision for what China could become someday. And so. The debates, the way that it, even just uh, kind of political phrasing or the language, the lingo of uh, political debates in Taiwan is pretty distinct. And it's, you know, I've noticed this repeatedly with uh, students like you or, or friends or colleagues who specialize in China and go to Taiwan for the first time. They're just, they're fascinated by the kind of openness and freedom of the debate and the willingness to to criticize anything and everything. And Everybody just accepts that that's the way it works, right? There's no need for censorship. In fact, censorship is bad. And so Taiwan offers this really kind of compelling, in my view, alternative to the vision that the CCP presents uh, for the future of China. Um, and it's it's as much that alternative vision as anything else that I think those of us around the world who care about freedom and democracy really need to embrace. Carlos Templeman, thanks so much for coming on the China Talk today. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Bubble tea. Having you just give me lots of clean. Such a good time. Love is just a drink away. It makes me think of all.
Drinking. 